Good morning. We're going to be going back to Ephesians this morning. And I was looking back through my notes and records. I had, at the end of last year, said I'm going to preach through Ephesians. And um, 40% of my messages since then have been from Ephesians. Um, So we're slowly working through it. The verses I want to look at primarily this morning are actually the ones I read in the devotional last Sunday evening. Um, The title of the message is Praying for Power. And the verses that will be um, working through this morning are from chapter 3, starting at verse 14 and going through the end of the chapter. And we have... Well, okay, people don't want to die. I think pretty much everybody here would agree with that generalization. People don't want to die. People also don't know how to live. And oddly enough, people don't know how to pray. And the answer to all three of these problems is the same. Jesus. Jesus Christ has given us access to God. We've read about that in this book as we've worked through it. In chapter 2, verse 18, we have, through him, Jesus, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Jesus Christ has given us access to God the Father. And Jesus, crucified and risen, our Savior, at the right hand of the Father, he's defeated death. We have that in chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. Death is defeated. Ephesians contains a lot of important truths about prayer. We've already learned in studying this book that prayer is conversation with the Father through the Son by the Spirit. We have that in chapter 2. In chapter 1, Paul has uh, a prayer uh, laid out there um, in the the end of the chapter, verses 17 and following, um, where he's asking for illumination from God, divine revelation and illumination from God. And then in this little section of verses... In chapter 3, we learn some more petitions that should fill our prayers. In these verses, uh, 3, 14 through 21, we see Paul showing us what it's like to pray in in the truth, in the view of God's greatness and our need, our our human need. This section is, is kind of a transitional section in the book. The first three chapters of Ephesians are primarily about who we are in Christ, about the work of God, the love of God, the grace of God, and and 
Paul over and over again, hardly able to contain himself as he as he thinks about the the hugeness and and the the grace and work of God. And so these first three chapters are are primarily um, about who we are in Christ in light of that and who God is. And then the next three chapters that we will at some point get into are primarily about how we're to live, how we relate then in light of who God is and who we are and that work. And then this little section right here is kind of the pivot point. It's, it's the transition between those two things. And understanding both pieces of this, both halves, is essential for us as Christians. But we need more than just knowledge of these things. And sandwiched between these two sections, then, is this prayer for power. This is a very important reminder for us. We must have God's power to do God's will. Let's go ahead and read these verses. Um, I'll read from Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I have three primary points I want to, to focus on or surface here. Um, about our need to pray with a proper and high view of God. The first one is pray with humility. And that is primarily seen in uh, verses 14, 15, and the first part of verse 16. The second is pray for the fullness of God's power and love. And that is then in verses 16 through 19 primarily. And the third is pray with great expectations in verses 20 and 21. So in in the first point, pray with humility. The first thing I notice here is Paul's posture. From what I've read, kneeling was not common for the Jews. Um, And if you you look at uh, pictures today of people at the Wailing Wall um, in Jerusalem, the typical position of the prayers is standing. And from what I've gathered, that would be a more traditional um, thing. And so I... I take note here that Paul, his posture, he's he's kneeling, he's bowing. Whenever someone is kneeling in prayer in the Bible, they're they're showing, they're demonstrating, they're they're indicating a depth of humility and and a depth of of emotion and connection before God. And I'm I'm not at all suggesting this is the only correct posture for prayer. Um, we have people praying in all kinds of positions, postures in the Bible. Um, There have been times that I think probably my favorite way to pray is walking. Um, 
but I want to emphasize the heart of the idea of kneeling here. As we consider that posture, we can draw a few applications. Um, specifically, I, I think of three things, gratitude, desperation, and confidence. So if, if I think about humble gratitude, we have in, in Paul uh, an example, a demonstration of just his humility and thankfulness to God. And, and the context would show us Paul is praying with, with that humility and thankfulness to God, humble gratitude. Um, in verse 14, he says, for this reason, what prompted this prayer? What was the reason that he talks about? Now, I had mentioned, I think when we were going through the first part of this chapter, it, it seems like Paul starts the prayer in verse 1, and then he takes that inspired holy rabbit trail to talk about calling and mission um, in verses 2 through through 13 here in this chapter. Um, and so we see both what preceded this chapter, what preceded him starting the prayer, chapters 1 and 2, and then his his excitement that he, he gets into about his calling and, and mission as a follower and child of God. And think of the first two chapters of the book, God's amazing grace that Paul just keeps getting into over and over again. He can't stop talking about it. Gratitude, thankfulness for the grace and work of God in chapters 1 and 2 prompted this prayer in chapter 3. For this reason, he says, Paul seems flabbergasted, astounded at God's grace in saving sinners individually and his grace in uniting them corporately. When we reflect on God's grace... We sing amazing grace. Do we actually think of God's grace as amazing grace? When we reflect on God's amazing grace, it should lead us to get on our knees and even our faces before God, the one who called us, the one who adopted us. He redeemed us. He forgave us. Christ died for us. The Spirit has sealed us, Scripture says. God has brought us from death to life. Raised us with Christ, seated us with Christ. We read that in this book. In, in the, the letter to the Ephesians. God has made us part of his church and citizens and his eternal kingdom. In the, the last, in earlier part of this chapter, um, he uses us in his church to demonstrate his power to the very spirit world. We have that in um, verses 10 and 11 in, in this chapter. And in light of all these realities, Paul says, for this reason, I bow, I kneel, before the Father, so should we. Burns and Dane Schmidt down in Peru share a birthday, and um, so they were uh, talking back and forth a little bit over either Telegram or WhatsApp messaging, giving each other happy birthday greetings last last week. Yeah, last week and. Um, Dane mentioned that they were going to have a piñata for his birthday. And uh, I was thinking about piñata a little bit then as, as I thought about prayer. Um, sometimes we treat prayer a little bit like a piñata. Um, we, we come and ask God for goodies and, and everything will just split open and here come all the goodies and then we can gather them up, right? Is that how we treat prayer? Prayer begins and ends in worship. That, that's what we see in Paul here. He is worshiping. 
Yes, he brings requests. Yes, he expects to walk away with some good things. But his prayer is drenched, is, is just, it is worship. He is worshiping. Paul knew God had taken the initiative to call sinners to himself in order to form a people. We, we, we see that in, in the earlier part of this chapter. And that makes Paul fall to his knees. Earlier part of this book, excuse me. Paul loved God because God had called sinners to himself. God had called Paul out of that darkness and into marvelous light, as he says it. God called sinners to himself, cleansed them, said there's no second-class citizens in the kingdom. Did he do this because the people were good? No, God did it because God is good. When was the last time we bowed in humility and thanks and humble gratitude to God like this? Psalm 95, verses 6 and 7. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Let us kneel before the Lord God, our Maker, our Creator, or as Paul says here, before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, in the end of verse 14 and in verse 15. Do we kneel? Will we kneel before the Sovereign Father over all and worship him for his grace and glory? I also see here a humble desperation. Kneeling is a sign of desperation. You don't kneel when you're, on, on, uh, when you're flying high. You kneel when you have need. When we realize we're approaching the only one who can, who can act on our behalf in, in Jesus, the only one, when we're, when we're approaching God, there is, a, there is a proper sense of helplessness as we think about his greatness in our humanity. And from these verses, we see that Paul is not some... Um, cold theologian, some egghead busy writing sophisticated arguments for philosophers to consider down through the ages. He, I, I see some of his, his passion as, as a leader. Um, in Acts 20 with the Ephesian elders, uh, it talks about him shedding tears as he left them. Paul was not just some um, stiff professor who wrote all these amazing theological things that have survived for all these years and, and been debated and talked about and passed around the world. Um, Paul was a man of, um, of emotion, of, of passion, and, and, and I see some of that in, in how he drops before God um, here. He sets a good example for us um, when I think of of kneeling in desperation, I also think of Stephen in Acts 7. Um, as they stoned him, he was calling out to God, asking God to receive. Uh, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And verse 60 in, in Acts 7 says, 
Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. He knelt, prayed an intercessory prayer for the very people murdering him, and then passed into glory. I find it interesting. He stood for the stoning according to that, but he knelt to pray for the very men who were killing him. Maybe I'm waxing too poetic about that, but that is just powerful to me. Why is Paul so passionate and desperate in these verses then? That he, he kneels before God um, and, and pours out his, his heart like this. Maybe he knows that the Ephesians need power. Uh, maybe he knows that what the Ephesians need, they can only get from God, namely power. Notice how Paul prays that God would grant them to be strengthened in verse 16. He knew God's power was a gift and he was desperate for God to answer. Do you come to God desperately? Or do you come to God for some insurance in case you maybe can't get through the day on your own? Do you, do I really, truly know, do I realize, do you realize that you are helpless and powerless without God? I think one of my favorite examples of that is wake yourself up tomorrow. And again, I'm not talking about, you know, make sure to set an alarm clock before you go to bed tonight. I'm saying choose to wake up in the morning. You can't. The best you can do is some external forces like an alarm clock to spur your body to uh, waking. But the reality is it's up, to, it's up to God to wake you up tomorrow. I read an interesting little story about helplessness or powerlessness outside of God. It was called, uh, the, the story was entitled Palm Monday. The donkey awakened, his mind still savoring the afterglow of the most exciting day of his life. Never before had he felt such a rush of pleasure and pride. He walked into town and found a group of people at the well. I'll show myself to them, he thought. But they didn't notice him. They went on drawing their water and paid him no mind. Throw your garments down, he said crossly. Don't you know who I am? They just looked at him in amazement. Somebody slapped him across the tail and ordered him to move. Miserable heathens, he muttered to himself. I'll just go to the market where the good people are. They will remember me. But the same thing happened. No one paid attention to the donkey as he strutted down the main street in front of the marketplace. The palm branches, where are the palm branches, he shouted. Yesterday you threw palm branches. Hurt and confused, the donkey returned home to his mother. Foolish child, she said gently. Don't you realize without him you're just an ordinary donkey? Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from God. Every bit of good reputation you carry is because of who you're walking with. Without him, you're just an ordinary donkey. John 15:5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. This should make us humble, should make us desperate, but it should also encourage us. 
You can do great things with his help. You can do great ministry for him. You can be a power in his kingdom with him, through him, and by him. And here in Paul, I also see humble confidence. Uh, Paul's introduction here shows that that we, we should come to God with confidence. We don't come with arrogance, thinking that God owes us blessings, but humility and with confidence. Why? We can pray with confidence because of our position in Christ. In Ephesians 2.18, uh, Paul said that because of that reconciling work of Jesus, our, our union with him, we have access to God. In chapter 3, he says, we have boldness and confident access uh, in verse 12. We have boldness and access with confidence. We can also pray with confidence because we're approaching our Father who loves us. John 16, verses 26 and 27. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I shall pray to the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. This is where our confidence in approaching God is rooted. Our Father is the Sovereign Father. Uh, in chapter 1, Paul calls him the Glorious Father. And in chapter 4, uh, Paul calls him the Father of all. Here, Paul says that every family in heaven and earth is named from God. Um, and, and in that, I, I don't know what all to make of that, but we do see we do see expressed God the Father's authority and rule and, and rule over all. Our Father is rich and powerful. Uh, God prays, excuse me, Paul prays for God to answer according to the riches of His glory. We read in Philippians 4, God's resources never run out. So bring your petitions to Him confidently. Our Father is gracious. Paul asks for God to grant the church strength. God loves to give good gifts to his children, particularly those things that pertain to the Spirit, not just material blessings, but the Spirit's guidance and work. Luke 11, verse 11, and following, If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The second main point, after pray with humility, the second point, pray for the fullness of God's power and love. And here we're looking primarily at verses 16 through 19 as we move to Paul's more specific petitions. Two main requests um, are seen here. Power and love. Um, we have... Um, um, I should have put it in my notes. Um, I had run across... Oh, I can't remember who wrote it now. Um, Somebody had, had, had laid it out saying that, that this these verses remind them of a staircase um, where we begin with the, um, the first request, uh, the lead request, I guess, 
to be strengthened with power in verse 16, and we move to the next request, um, and he uses that. Paul uses that to, to tie or build these things, and, and, and we can sort of see a staircase there. It's growing um, until we eventually reach the, the top, that you, so you may be filled with the fullness of God in, in verse 19. Notice all the phrases about power and love in just these three verses. And then we look into verse 20. Um, so verse 16, we have strengthened with power. Verse 17, rooted and firmly established in love. Uh, verse 18, we, we are talking about able to comprehend God's love. Verse 19, to know Jesus, the Messiah's love. Uh, verse 19, also fit, uh, filled with all the fullness of God. And then in verse 20, according to the power that works in us. Paul is essentially praying for the readers to experience what he's just talked about in all these, all the chapters, all the verses leading up to this. Christ's supreme power and God's great love. We should remember that prayer and teaching always go together. It's one thing to teach it or hear it. It is another to experience it. So let's look a little closer at what Paul believed the Ephesians desperately needed um, because it's what we desperately need also. We need to be strengthened by the Spirit's power. We see this uh, verses 16 and getting into 17. We need to be strengthened by the Spirit's power. Paul asks God to strengthen the believers with power in the inner man. This is where we need strength and power on the inside. This is how we fight sin, proclaim the gospel, uh, love people the way Christ loved us. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says that the outer man is perishing, but the inner man is being renewed. So, our bodies may be wearing out, but while our bodies are weakening, our inner man may be renewed by the Spirit. I was thinking about it this morning, that it has been a long time since I went out and did any running um, not because I was being chased, but because I wanted to uh, improve my health. And I thought of a man I met uh, a little over a year, yeah, a little over a year ago, I think it was, um, who uh, didn't start doing any recreational running until he was 35. And on his 50th birthday, he ran a half marathon um, before breakfast. And... Uh, and not an organized one, he just, that was what he wanted to do. That was how he wanted to spend his birthday, was to go run um, a half marathon and then come home and have a cup of coffee and some eggs with his wife. And uh, I was thinking, I'm 35. Um, physically, I am pretty sure that it's downhill from here primarily. Um, professional athletes hitting 35 that's kind of when the they're working against time and not with it um, the outer man may be perishing as scripture puts it your body may even be wearing out and all of you young people congratulations for being young you'll get here um, but while our bodies weaken the inner man can always be renewed by the spirit Brother Glenn's father, living out the, these last years primarily in a chair, he can still be renewed in that inner man, even as the degeneration of the outer man weakens. Our culture places 
primary importance on the outer person. Think of all the billions of dollars that are spent on advertising, the paint to make your face look better, the cloth and logos to make you look better and stand out as you walk down the street. Think of, just think of the marketing budgets of all these companies that all they do is try to make your outside look a little different or better or yeah, I guess at least different. Um, our culture places primary importance on the outer person but the inner person is far more important. First Samuel, make sure you give attention to your inner being. First Samuel 16, verse 7. For the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. In Proverbs 31:30, Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give attention to your inner being. Why do we need to be strengthened by the Spirit in the inner man? Paul says that Christ, the Messiah, may dwell in your hearts through faith. So these two petitions, these two requests in verses 16 and 17 clearly belong together. Paul uses the language of the inner man in verse 16. He speaks of the heart in verse 17. He uses the language of the strength of the Spirit in verse 16. And then the indwelling um, in verse 17. This is indeed part of the mystery that Paul references a, a number of times in this book, that Christ dwells in believers, not in a tabernacle or temple. Um, I thought, well, I thought Christ was already in my heart as a Christian. And yes, he is. John 14 um, speaks to that. But Paul seems to be talking about something more here than just Christ dwelling in our hearts Paul is talking about Christ ruling in our heart. Paul's choice of words for dwell is important. He uses a strong word. Um, he could have used the word that means simply to inhabit, um, but instead he uses a word that has more the idea of to settle down. Um, so a pilgrim inhabits their tent each night, or a nomad inhabits their tent each night. Um, that's not really the, the wording that Paul used here. He used a word that is more... Um, setting your roots in, um, to settle down. It carries the idea of being a permanent resident, not a short-time person staying. Um, and, if, and if you think about the distinction there, what, what is the difference when you walk into someone's hotel room, even if they're staying there for you know a week of business or meetings or whatever, versus walking into their bedroom at home or their living room at home. Big, big difference. The The hotel room will take some flavor of, of them. Um, for some of us, it means it will be a lot less neat than when we first got there. Um, but, but it will not reflect um, quite the same, that short-term versus the long-term resident. Um, when, when Christ takes up residence in me, in you, when he takes up residence in a believer, think of... Um, so a few weeks ago we visited Morris and Evelyn and their house looks different than it did on moving day in a good way it is it, it takes on a a, um, a flavor there, there's, there's cleaning up repairing, modifying and eventually um, 
and, and if and if you listen to well why this was done this way or why that was done that way it's the the house has been shaped to our needs and our likes and and i feel comfortable here with my family as as our as our home as the place where we come back to when christ by his spirit takes up residence in us he finds when christ takes up residence in us we drove past the house that brother levi's are are fixing up out on ash street he finds i i get a picture of that when when christ first comes in the door of the sinner's heart there is trash and garbage and mold and dark ugly wallpaper i mean just it is horrible and he gets to work he fixes the leaking roof he sets about turning this resident into this this residence into a place appropriate for him a home in which he is comfortable when a person takes up long-term residence somewhere their presence eventually characterizes that dwelling you walk if, if I walk into any one of your homes there is the there is a way in which your home characterizes you as a family it's the same in us if Christ is going to be able to live there it's gonna it's gonna start taking on his flavor or else he's not at home and he's not going to stay where he's not at home. He wants it fixed up. He's, he's going to work at this. When Christ first moves into our lives, he finds bad repair, and it takes a great deal of power. Think of the, the chapters we've already looked at to change us. And Paul prays then for power, transforming power. Christ enters the heart of a Christian that he may live, abide, and reign there. He enters our hearts that we may reflect his character. In Colossians, Paul says that we are to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Let the word of Christ dwell in our hearts. That's Colossians 3. Let's pray the same as Paul did. We need power to grasp Christ's love. We see that in the second part of verse 17 going into verse 19. Um, Paul moves from talking about strength to love, but strength is still in view since we need God's power to understand the limitless dimensions of his love yes the ephesians knew of god's love but paul's asking for them to know it better note that this petition does not focus on the ephesians love for christ that's a good thing for which to pray but that is not the focus here as as paul's praying instead it's a prayer that the ephesians may know christ's love for them paul apparently thinks they don't appreciate christ's love as much as they should do you think you appreciate christ's love as much as you should i think the same could likely be said of us when we begin to grasp christ's love for us we we cannot we cannot do anything but live a crucified life when when we get hold of that when we get a hold of the the width the the height the depth Consider how Paul ties an understanding of Christ's love to Christians being radically obedient. And if in Galatians 2, verses 19 and 20, for, the I, for I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me 
and gave himself for me. He also, in Ephesians 5, uh, and a little later in this book, uh, tells us to walk in love as Christ also loved us and has given himself for us. This is not merely an intellectual appreciation for the love of Christ uh, that Paul's charging for here. Um, he's not just asking that his readers might become more able to articulate the greatness of God's love in Christ or to grasp with our mind alone how significant God's love is in the plan of redemption. He's asking God that they might have the power to get a hold of the dimensions of the love in their, in their experience. God's love is rooted, yes, in history. We see his love and how he created and how he um, set his people apart and how he um, delivered them. We see his love, uh, maybe we would say historically, the, the culmination of it at the cross, at, at Jesus coming, living, dying, rising again. Yes, we see God's love in history, but it is a love that is to be tasted. It's a love that is to be experienced. And there, there are many, quite a number of verses that refer to that idea of experience. For the sake of time, we won't read many of them. Uh, Psalm 143, verse 8 would be one. Um, uh, Peter, in 1 Peter 1, verse 8, um, also has, has the idea of, of the, the experiencing of Christ's love. It, it's more than just a mere head knowledge. Uh, Paul goes on to say that this love surpasses knowledge, in fact. It's a love that's knowable and explainable to a degree, but it has to be experienced. Now, I say experienced, and instantly there are two ditches in, or at least one ditch in some of, yeah, anyway. Um, there are two ditches to avoid regarding experience. First, watch out for experiential abuse, some base too much on experience. They don't filter experience through God's word, and you can almost get into some mysticism. Um, this is dangerous. Uh, it can lead to heresy and all kinds of problems. Um, God's revelation must be primary. We, we have to understand our experience through the lens of scripture. Um, second, though, watch out for experiential avoidance. Um, some are so afraid of the abuses of experience and the work of the Spirit that they have their own problem that is an avoidance of the Spirit and experience, and you then will end up with just cold, dead orthodoxy. Um, we experience the love of God. God shows us what we need. He spent. Paul shows us what we need in God. He spent three chapters on God's truth. Now he says he wants us to know it, to experience it. God's salvation, God's power and love, they are to be firsthand to us, not just knowledge. Something we experience. Many people have known right doctrine but committed grave sin because they were not walking in the fullness of God's presence, God's love, personally, directly. I once read a description of a person who was straight as a gun barrel and just as empty. Um, if all you have is the, the knowledge that Paul lays out and you don't get to actually getting to God and getting a hold of him, then you don't have anything. 
I'm not sure what all to skip for the sake of time here. Verse 17, know that you're secured in God's love, firmly rooted, rooted and firmly established in love. Uh, build your life on love. Put your roots down into it. Uh, Ephesians 1, this love came This love came to us before the foundation of the world. Um, and the love God has called us, in love God has called us and brought us to life in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Know the limitless dimensions of God's love. God's love. Know the limitless. Anyway. Um, know the dimensions that can't be measured. Paul goes on to express his desire for the Ephesians to grasp something of the greatness of God's love. He uses expressions length, width, height, depth. Um, read Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. Um, again, Paul, Paul brings out tries to use size a little bit to, to give us um, a better grasp and appreciation for God's love. It, it, it's difficult to understand precisely what Paul's getting at, but God's love is is extensive, it's massive, and, and he's trying to get us to just get a little bit closer to at least understanding the scale of its massiveness because we're never going to understand the specific size, and that's not not really the point. He's just using that to help us get get farther along. Uh, scripture speaks of the breadth of God's love. Um, think of how he included all ethnic groups, Jew and Gentile are one to us. I think we lose a lot. Um, modern day Western American Christians. I think we lose a lot about the, the ma uh, magnitude of Jew and Gentile being one. It's all we've ever known. After all, we're Gentiles. The, the division between Jew and Gentile throughout history. Uh, I don't think we, we quite grasp the breadth of, of what God did in, in, in uh, knitting together in, in Christ um, in, in the specifics of that sometimes. Scripture speaks of his love being as long as eternity. Jeremiah, um, he has loved you with an everlasting love. Scripture speaks of God's love being higher than the heavens in Psalm 103. Scripture speak of God's love in terms of depth. Uh, I think of that with in Micah. Can't think of the chapter. Micah um, talks about God casting our sins to the bottom of the sea, and I think of depth in, in God's love there. Paul says we should try to comprehend it, but it takes God's power, of course, to do so. Know that this love passes surpasses knowledge. Uh, verse 19, Paul urges us to grasp and experience God's love as much as possible, but we cannot get to the bottom of God's love. We can't get to the top of God's love. We can't, we can't find the edges of it because it surpasses knowledge. Um, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you you get a grasp of, of the size of God's love that's going to make a difference in how you live out that verse. Um, know God's love that you may be mature. We see that in verse 19 also. Paul concludes his prayer with um, the great phrase of filled with all the fullness of God. Paul wants them to know the love of God in Christ 
to the end that they might be all that God wants them to be. Paul uses similar wording um, elsewhere in the book. Um, Chapter 4, verse 13, he talks about it. Um, Chapter 5, verse 18, he talks about us being as individuals filled with the Spirit of God. And then as a church uh, in verses 22 and 23 of chapter 1. We're already filled with his fullness, but we are to grow up in him until we reach fullness, he then says in chapter 4. God is growing us to maturity in Christ, which means he's growing us up into the fullness of Christ. And then the last point, pray with great expectations. In verses 20 and 21, Paul moves to praise. He shows us the greatness of God. Um, Consider the what, how, and why of, of his closing here. In the first part of chapter 20, Paul says God is able well, able to do what? And and I just love how, how Paul keeps shoveling uh, praises to describe God's sovereign mightiness. To do above, but that's not all. To do above and beyond. Well, that's not all. To do above and beyond all that we ask. Well, but that's not all either. To do above and beyond all that we ask or think. God can do more in response to one prayer that I can do than I can do in 100 years of planning and plotting and and hard labor. God can do so much beyond what I can even begin to comprehend or or fathom. Do we believe that God alone is the only sovereign? He is the one who raised Jesus from the dead, placed him head over the church, put all things under his feet. If so, pour out your heart to him, believing he is able. We need a vision of God that increases our faith in God's greatness. Um, how? Uh, in Again, in, in verse 20, how does God work beyond our imagination? And Paul says it's according to the power that works in us. Think about the examples of this in the Bible. Think of his, his work in the lives of Abraham, Moses, uh, David, Gideon, Elijah, a man, according to James 5, like us. Um, Isaiah, Nehemiah, we'll look at him Wednesday evening, the disciples, the church through the ages. Think about the examples of the power that works in us. God is able to do extraordinary things through ordinary people by his power at work within them. And then in verse 21, the why. Why does God do these things? And Paul says it here in verse 21 as... um, This should be the ultimate goal for our prayers for power and love. To him be glory in the church in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. God blesses his people for his own glory. But notice Paul says that God desires his glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. God desires glory in the bride and in the bridegroom in the, in the, um, what's the word I want? In, in the community or, or, or life of peace and in the peacemaker. God gets glory from from both. For how long? Forever. Forever God will be glorified for his power and love. Forever God will be glorified by his people. Forever God will be glorified in Jesus, the lamb who was slain. Forever God will be glorified in the Christ who has reconciled us to the Father and to one another and who now dwells in our hearts through the Spirit. Can we have a song, please?